Hello, beautiful, and welcome to Finding Fertility. I'm your host, Monica Cox from FindingFertility.co, and I created this podcast to help get you to start thinking outside of the box and realize that your infertility might have nothing to do with your lady bits. Rooted in functional medicine and personal experience, Finding Fertility is all about looking at the whole body and finding the root cause of your infertility. Finding Fertility does not diagnose, prescribe, or treat any issues of infertility but what we do is take a holistic approach and improve your diet and your lifestyle to get you steps closer to creating your dream family just by being here with me listening to this podcast you're already going down the right path to making your dreams come true let's do this together Happy Friday, all. Welcome back to another episode of Finding Fertility. I'm super excited to have Lisa on today to talk all things about PMS and how our normal symptoms aren't really that normal. So welcome to the podcast, Lisa. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. So tell us a little bit about how you even first stumbled on to what you're doing now. What made you, what was your journey that kind of brought you here? Yeah, I mean, my journey started when I was pretty young. So from my very first period, it was painful and heavy. And I was, you know, pretty athletic. I was in ballet and track and all the things. And so having a really heavy, painful period wasn't conducive to any of those things. And I didn't know how to deal with it like most women. So I went to my doctor hoping for the pill. And then I said three words and he was already writing the prescription. And so that was when I was about 15, 16, let's say. And so what I found, because I wasn't using the pill for birth control this time, it was just to kind of manage these periods. So it was like magic. I went on the pill and then my so-called, you know, air quotes periods were really, they were manageable and I didn't have the pain. And I kind of thought, oh, sweet, I'm fixed. So I would go off of it because I wasn't using it for birth control. And then every time I would go off of it, it would just come back with a vengeance. So I didn't know to the extent that I do now or have the words to describe it, but I did have this like evidence that it wasn't fixing it, that whatever it was doing wasn't the same as my real period. So I didn't know how to explain it, but I knew that. And so what happened was when I finally did need birth control. So when I was in university and, you know, had my first serious relationship and all that kind of stuff, I remember thinking to myself, you know, I don't know what's going on with my periods, but I had this, I had, there were women in my life, like my mom and a few of my aunties that had had challenges with fibroids, hysterectomies, even challenges getting pregnant. So I had this thing in the back of my mind that I was, you know, I I felt like there was a genetic predisposition for issues and I was concerned. And so I was like, well, I don't really want to be on the pill. And uh, so I decided when I needed to be, uh, when I needed birth control, that I would come off the pill and use condoms. And so it was right around that time that I discovered fertility awareness. I discovered that contrary to what I was taught, I'm not fertile every single day. And there's an actual fertile window that lasts, you could say about a week, six days from a scientific perspective, each cycle where pregnancy is possible. And outside of that window, it's not possible. So that blew my mind, of course. And I really took to that because what it, uh, because before I was thinking, okay, I'll just use condoms and still be afraid all the time. Yeah, right. But then with this additional information, I was able to learn how to identify when in my cycle I was fertile. And I learned that there was actually a time in my cycle that I wasn't. And so I was able to use this method throughout my 20s 
to avoid pregnancy without being on hormones. To answer your question of like how I kind of got into this and, and I'm doing what I do now, when I, at that early age, when I learned all of this, there was a group of women on my campus, some of whom were teachers and trained educators. And I actually took a training program and was teaching women how to chart in my early 20s. <laughs> and so since then, at that time, I guess it's dating myself, there weren't all these fantastic uh, internet tools. And so I couldn't see how I could make a career out of it. I was obviously really passionate and I was just doing it on a very small scale. And then fast forward to when I had my first son, when I was you know, in my late 20s, early 30s, that's when it really hit me that so many women are struggling with fertility challenges. And the average woman to this day still doesn't know that you can't get pregnant every day, that you can identify the fertile window, you know, and use this for either conception or birth control. So this is what really launched me into speaking on a broader scale with the podcast and the book out of this desire to share this knowledge with women, because even though it's not new to me anymore, it's been almost two decades, still, I get messages and emails from women almost every day now who are just like, oh my gosh, I had no idea. I'm so glad I found you. Like this is a systemic problem that women still just don't know the basic biology of their bodies. Exactly. I mean, we've talked about this before on the podcast and it's just like, obviously with everything going on, especially in America, uh, it's really highlighted how suppressed the woman's body is and how we are not even taught the basics of our anatomy because of people's either beliefs or being uncomfortable about it. You know, I say the word vagina to my sons. They know that I have a vagina. You know, it's not mommy's foo-foo or like, <laughs> you know, it's, it's not a secretive thing. It's not something to be ashamed about. Um, but I definitely, we're definitely a part of the same generation. And yeah, I can like remember some of my really pathetic sex education in middle school. And of course, uh, you get the fear of God putting you that you can get pregnant by like hugging too hard. And, you know, especially if you bring religion into it, you know, the fear that you are put into it. And it's just like, I mean, it's, it's now proven if you just educate women about their cycles and give them the tools that they need to, you know, avoid pregnancy, a lot of the issues we have around, you know, unwanted pregnancies or abortions or even infertility could really decrease by large amounts. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. And I mean, I think most women experience this. I think most people experience this substandard sex education, if that's what you want to call it. But it's basically, in, in many ways, it's, it's indoctrination because it's not telling you the truth. Yes. So what would you, you know, what do you call it if it's actually telling you blatant lies? Mm -hmm. So by telling you that you can get pregnant every day of your cycle, well, that's literally false. And it's basic biology that we're talking about here. So it really blows people's minds on a regular basis because I think, you know, a lot of people hear fertility awareness and they think the rhythm method, like my grandma back in the day. Uh, <laughs> and so we think of this calendar thing. And this is, I think, a product of the pill because the pill was designed to be 28 days for the record. They could have chosen any time frame. They could have chosen 36 days or, but they chose because it's an artificial cycle. Um, and the only reason you bleed is because you have the couple days of you know, sugar pills. So this 
kind of sets it in our mind that cycles are 28 days, ovulation happens on day 14. And so when it comes to the rhythm method, that's basically what it's based on, that you're basically like a robot and every cycle is going to be the same. So, yeah. so you can predict it. And what happens when people follow that is they get pregnant because it turns out we're not robots. Our cycles are on average about 28, 29 days. So it, you know, whenever you look at any studies on the menstrual cycle, you will see that average for grown women. It's about 29 days. But within that average, you have anywhere from 24 to 35 days in a healthy cycle. And so, you know, a lot of people would just think, oh, this is just some foolishness and it doesn't work. But for modern fertility awareness-based methods are not about predicting ovulation. They're about identifying when in your cycle are fertile based on biomarkers. So based on your cervical fluid production, which happens as you approach ovulation, um, cervical fluid is what keeps the sperm alive for up to five days, the basal body temperature, you know, I'm sure your listeners are familiar with these things because women who are trying to conceive and have been for a while are kind of forced into yes. this knowledge mm -hmm. because they soon realize, wow, you know, I was taught that I'll just have sex on every day. And then I, it's not even like I could get pregnant it's I would get pregnant. And yes. so for anyone who's having sex on all the right days, I mean, eventually you kind of figure this out that no, it's not every day ovulation isn't day 14. Yeah, it's insane. Fertility or infertility, I would say, um, really pushes you into learning so many things about yourself. And that is the first step is your cervix, you know, your, you know, all the things, your peeing on sticks, your timing, all that. And then when those things aren't working for you and you seemingly have normal periods, that's when you start getting pushed into other things. You're like, okay, everything's working, especially unexplained infertility. Going back to when you realize, okay, I don't need to be on the pill. It's not working for me. You got off of it. Were you still having, you know, issues like the PMS, you know, all the symptoms during, you know, your early 20s? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. For me, the PMS wasn't a big focal point. But with that said, uh, I think that if you ask any woman who has cycled naturally for any period of time, she'll tell you that it's a cycle. So you have different emotions, different energy levels and all those types of things. So um, I wouldn't say that I ever felt that my PMS was totally out of control, but certainly over the years, I have definitely noticed changes in my mood, how much, how much I'm willing to tolerate certain changes <laughs> during the week before my period. So to answer your question though, the biggest issue for me was always pain pain yeah. and volume. And so, you know, in retrospect, it's certainly possible that I did have some degree of PMS, but compared to the pain, it just fell off to the wayside, not even on my radar because so uh, now I, I have two children. So I have uh, two sons at currently age five and seven. And so when I was in my early twenties, you know, my average period was so ridiculous that it felt like I was like in labor yeah. With no baby at the end. And I remember I'd be like on the floor, writhing in pain, right? Thinking like, well, geez, labor. And then when I actually went through labor with my first son, I didn't think I was in labor all day. So now I know I was in labor because I know those were actual contractions. But I was like, oh, those are probably just Braxton Hicks. My period pain hurts more than this. So in my experience, then I, I stopped taking the pill, but I still did have to deal with that. And I, I at the time when I was in my early 20s, I didn't really have a lot of knowledge and information for how to do that. So I kind of took a lot of Advil and kind of, you know, tried a few things here and there. So I've come a much greater way at this point. And so I support my clients to help 
reduce and eliminate their period pain at this at this stage of what I do. And a big part of even just getting your head around the fact that you can have periods without pain or at least significantly reduce your pain is to understand that pain is not normal. It's very common. A lot of women experience pain. That doesn't make it healthy. And outside of period pain and labor, there is basically no example of anything where we think that moderate to severe pain is okay. Right? So understand, <laughs> like, <Sorry>. right? Yeah. <laughs> totally. Picture a man in your life who has like moderate to severe pain, like he's on the floor because his groin feels like it's on fire for like two days every month. And everyone's like, yeah, that's just part of being a dude. Like that's what penises do. Like that's insane, right? right. Okay. Yeah, 100%. We're all insane people for accepting this as, to- as, as okay. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but we live in a, a world where that it tells us that this is okay. Um, and especially when it pertains to fertility challenges, because so, you know, A, pain is very common, yes, but it's not normal. I say moderate to severe pain is a problem. And, yeah. I, and this is why I stress it. And I think even just for, you know, any woman who's listening who has period pain to hear someone else say that out loud can be very powerful. Like, whoa, because even my doctor told me it was fine. Mm-hmm. But it's not fine. So other than that, one of the things that I talked about uh, in the you know, period pain chapter of my book, so if you look at the research, so I think this is very helpful for women who experience pain. I found a few studies. And so pain is associated with inflammation. Mm-hmm. And there are ways to measure that. And so, for example, prostaglandins are a group of lipids that cause muscle can smooth, smooth muscle contractions. And so in order to have just a normal, regular period, that takes place. So your body releases these prostaglandins and they serve an important role. So women that have moderate to severe pain show often upwards of four times the level of prostaglandins, which is a marker of inflammation compared to women who don't have pain. So now you have science to say that women who experience pain actually literally have a higher level of inflammatory markers in their system. And I think for a lot of women who experience pain, it's like, well, geez, I knew that it, this was a problem because it really hurts. It's horrific. I've the, the descriptions of women. I had a woman in one of my classes describe it as she's like, it's like I was being simultaneously like set on fire while being like beaten up or something like that. Like it was just like, like it's horrible. Like, I, I, and I know everyone doesn't experience like that degree of pain. And then because of that, a lot of women minimize their pain because it's like, oh, I know someone who has it worse than me. So I, you know, but with that said, I guess the purpose of this is to say like that is kind of scientific evidence to show that women with pain have these, like it's actually a problem. And also a significant percentage of women who experience extreme pain also have endometriosis. And so by not taking the pain seriously and not looking at that as a problem, many women are not necessarily getting that diagnosis. And as, as I'm sure your listeners know, endometriosis is one of the huge contributors to fertility challenges. And of course, just to say that not all women have pain when they have endometriosis. So some women have no symptoms of en- like no pain and, to speak of. And their symptom is infertility. I mean, it's absolutely insane going back to what we learn and how women's bodies are repressed. I mean, our mothers were taught that, you know, they were told to shut up. My mom had a hysterectomy at 32 years old. And knowing what I know now, I'm convinced she either had a, she might've had a combination, but I'm pretty sure she had endometriosis 
or PCOS. And she was, she had me and my brother accidentally very early in life. But after she had us, she struggled and struggled and struggled. And the doctors just were like, it's normal. It's normal. Be quiet. Here's some pain medication. And eventually she screamed loud enough and they went in when they went, you know, did the surgery. They were just like, whoa, like her whole insides were messed up. And I still think when she had that like mid nineties, there still wasn't good information. You know, I don't even think she got a like, this is what was wrong with you. Sorry. (laughs) You know, like we can now see inside of you. And for me, you know, I had kind of the normal PMS symptoms. I had cramping. Sometimes it was really severe, but you know, nothing. I could always pop pills and get on with my day. You know, I, the sore boobs, the moodiness, you know, all the normal things. And so I never, I thought that was, you know, we always think it's normal. And when I was going through infertility, I was just like, well, I'm normal. These are all the normal symptoms that women have. So why am I not getting pregnant? And when you come back to the inflammation stuff, um, my body was so inflamed with, you know, I had uh, really poor gut health. I definitely had leaky gut. I ended up finding out that I had um, high natural killer cells And that was contributing to the layer of normal inflammation that's supposed to be going on in your body in all different areas, but it just ramped up and ramped up. And after I figured out my infertility issues, figured out what I needed to do to support my body, all of a sudden my, my whole periods are like lovely. I'm like, oh, I'm on my period today. Oh, okay. <laughs> like, it's not this week of buildup of like, you know, horrendous moods and, you know, cramping. And when you're dealing with infertility, that like cramping between, you know, ovulation and period, you're always like, oh, is that implantation? You know, you start tricking your mind thinking, oh, is this, is this me getting pregnant? But it's, a very clear sign we know now. And like you say, the research is out there. The scientific evidence is out there that these aren't normal things. And when you're dealing with infertility, it could be a really big warning sign that something is wrong. You need to figure out what that, you know, issue is, and then you can address it, you know, through diet, through lifestyle, medication if needed, Um, But there are ways and just getting that message out there that it's not normal. (laughs) It's common, but it's not normal. Well, I think when it comes to PMS, I feel like it's helpful to divide the normal cyclical changes that one experiences throughout the menstrual cycle with what is problematic. We live in a culture that's very negative, obviously, to all things (laughs) menstrual. And really kind of makes it into this thing where having any emotional changes is like this, it's like this big no-no or something like that. Mm -hmm. And so first things first, I mean, men have their daily circadian rhythms and our whole world is based on that. So there's this idea that everything's supposed to be the same every day Mm -hmm. and your productivity is supposed to be the same every day. And we can kind of look at it on a day-to-day basis as uh, based on that, that male model, essentially, except as, as women, we... (laughs) We, yeah, we have circadian rhythms too, but we obviously have this monthly rhythm. So I recently did a a podcast interview with Elisa Beatty and she talked about the infradian rhythm, which is essentially just a rhythm that is not daily. (laughs) So our rhythm is monthly. And so when you think about it from that perspective, then already we have to look at it differently. 
if yes. we're going based on a day-to-day idea of what we should feel and, and, and every day should be just as productive as, as the next, it sets us up for failure because that's not how the female body works. So I just like to make the distinction. There's this old medical term called menstrual molamina, and it refers to some of the changes that take place at different points of the cycle. So if you're paying attention to your cycle, you have your period, and then you would typically have some days before you start to see your cervical fluid. You know, in a typical healthy cycle, you'll see two to seven days of cervical fluid that will lead to ovulation, and then you'll ovulate, and then you'll go into the post-ovulatory phase, which typically lasts about 12 to 14 days in a healthy, typical cycle. And that is kind of the time in question here. For women who experience PMS, it's the seven days before their period starts. So basically the week before their period, if they're experiencing bad PMS symptoms, that's when they're happening. And so I think, you know, before we jump into medicalizing this, when you look at the science, when you look at the research, they'll say things like 90% of women experience PMS symptoms. Well, geez, if 90% of people feel tired after they run a marathon, are we calling that a disease? So I think, right? So I think first things first, we have to acknowledge that some degree of fluctuation, some degree of cyclical fluctuation is normal so that we can have a sense of uh, at what point is this problematic as opposed to throwing it all under the bus. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And one of the ways to do that, there's a really great analogy if you think about the seasons, I guess, of your menstrual cycle, like the seasons of the year. So you have your period, which is like the inner winter you have after your period ends it's like the spring, right? Things are starting to perk up again and you start entering into this follicular phase, which is essentially as your follicle, as the eggs are developing. So the, the first half of your cycle then after your period is the spring and ovulation would be the summer and then the luteal phase would be the fall and then we're back to winter again. And so there is some degree of, you know, energetic changes that are supposed to happen and most women do experience. And so, for example, after your period, once you kind of get into that follicular phase as you're approaching ovulation, many women will say that they feel better. They feel more outgoing. They have more energy. They maybe feel more creative. And that is kind of the time of the cycle for, for many women, not all, when they kind of shine and they feel very energetic. They, you know, they can do more. This is the part of the cycle when you can really kind of achieve. <laughs> and then once you get past ovulation, so once you ovulate and you enter into the two-week wait or the luteal phase, then that is often the time of the cycle where your energy shifts and you have less of that energy to kind of give away. You might actually feel a bit less outgoing. You might want to spend a little bit more time to yourself. And of course, that intensifies for many of us the week before a period starts. For many of us, we might feel a bit more tired, a bit less like we want to do stuff. And so one of the things that I would love for the listeners to take away from this conversation is that didn't expect the period to change, but you kind of make all these other changes for other reasons. And then you notice that your periods are a bit better. So one of the ways in general to take care of ourselves is to acknowledge the cyclical nature of the menstrual cycle and start to kind of, you don't have to like totally change everything in your whole life. But if you acknowledge that there's a couple days of your cycle when you tend to feel more tired and you don't schedule a bunch of interviews or appointments around that time and you actually schedule in some downtime for yourself that in general is okay like it's it's and if you do that you end up setting yourself up for success i'll i'll dish it back to you but i'll just say like 
I think that it's important to recognize that some degree of that energetic emotional fluctuation is normal, but then we have to talk about like, at what point is it problematic? And that point is when it starts to negatively affect your life, right? So there's a difference between feeling these energetic shifts, feeling like you have less energy versus feeling totally anxious, depressed, you crying, like you just, it's out of control and you really feel um, these huge emotional abrupt shifts. It's affecting your relationships in your life. You have uncontrollable cravings. You like you have out of control bloating. You have you know pain and cramping outside of your like. So I think that everyone's getting what I'm putting down. Like there's a difference between what's normal and then when it negatively starts to affect your life. Yeah, two things pop into my mind when you describe it this way. One, it feels like nature's way of saying slow the f down because you might be (laughs) coming into having to grow a child (laughs) and then the second thing is is the whole societal pressure that has been put on women whether we wanted it or not you know obviously women wanted to be have a voice you know not play second fiddle and I think you know the feminists have done amazing things for us but at the same time it's it's not like okay now you're equal to a man don't worry you don't have to do everything a woman was designed to do And so as we are naturally designed to have these ups and downs and ups and downs, it's like society's like, no, 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 you can't be down. (laughs) You have to be super productive all the time. And then we beat ourselves up because there is a time in our cycle that, no, we do just need to step back, take care of ourselves. We 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 physically probably don't have the mental and emotional you know energy to do those things and to recognize that in ourselves and most people dealing with infertility know their cycle inside out but they probably don't know that it is the right thing to do to slow down at certain points and this will help you in your fertility journey well you bring up such an important point and I, I really resonate w- with what you said about feminism because I remember I call it my post high school feminist phase. You know, when I went off to university and I started taking all these women's studies classes, and there was a women's center on campus, and that's largely one of the reasons that I do what I do today because that's uh, one of the one of the ways I was exposed to all these amazing pieces of information at such a young age. But one of the challenges that I personally have found in my life is that like I was all for this idea of like equality and I don't think it was ever I mean it was never a question in my mind but I don't think it was ever a question of if we're you know smarter smart like as smart as intelligent as capable as men so for me that's not an issue (laughs) but not men yes and this is this is where the challenge for me lies because it would seem as though, at least to some degree, that, you know, one of the goals of feminism was to make us, you know, equal to men, but the same as men. Uh, men, we talked about the 24-hour the rhythm. Men largely, there are cycles in men's lives, but it's not the same. Mm-hmm. There's literally cycles in our lives, like on a literal monthly basis. But then there's also these cycles throughout our reproductive life. So we have a phase of where we're reproductive, and then we have a phase where it stops. For any woman who has some point in her life young children, that's a phase of life that is different to when you don't. And the world doesn't account for that. Mm-hmm. So I think that a lot of women struggle with that because feminism, there were times, let's just put it this way, there were times where I felt that feminism didn't necessarily make room for me. Because what if I don't want to be on the pill, but I still want to avoid pregnancy? And what if I want to have children at some point in my life? 
and I want to have that choice. And, and what if I, what if I don't want to be in a male dominated profession? And what if I want at time at certain points of my life to just take a step back and be a mom? Mm -hmm. Does feminism support me in all of those choices? And so some people would say absolutely yes. But I will just say for myself, like I didn't necessarily always feel that way. So I feel like there's some, some challenges there that we should address because in my opinion, and I, I identify as a feminist, but what I say is, you know, I will always support the feminism that allows me to be a woman, like however that, whatever that means for me. <laughs> and part of it is taking care of ourselves and acknowledging that we are not men and that we have cycles and that our bodies just operate on a bit of a different schedule. We need to be able to allow for that. and. Um, and one of the things, one of the great things, so what's central in, in the work that I do is this idea of the menstrual cycle as a vital sign mm -hmm. and as this incredible biomarker that's always giving you information back. So we talked briefly about periods and how a lot of us think that it's normal for them to be painful. Well, we also think it's normal to have like raging PMS. <laughs> a lot of us just think that this just is part of being a woman. And mm -hmm. um, oh yeah, all women just experience raging PMS. Uh, no, they don't. Yeah. So first of all, no, they don't. Like not all women experience raging PMS. We can look at PMS symptoms as a vital, like it's part of this whole concept of your menstrual cycle as a vital sign. If every time you approach your period, you have sharp, abrupt emotional changes, you notice all kinds of symptoms that you are not comfortable with at all. Uh, first of all, that is a sign that something is off. And again, taking it back to the science, what's really, really interesting when you look at the PMS research is that women who have moderate to severe PMS symptoms consistently, when you do a blood draw, <laughs> one of the things that is pretty consistent in these women is that they have often have a sharp drop of progesterone or generally lower progesterone compared to estrogen during the second half of their cycle. Mm -hmm. So this isn't to say that we're totally ruled by our hormones, but it, similar to my comment about pain, we actually know from a scientific standpoint that women who have significant issues with PMS have issues with their hormonal balance. Yeah. And another thing <laughs> is that there's an interesting relationship between progesterone and cortisol so cortisol is our stress hormone and the more stressed uh, you are or let's say the more cortisol your body is needing to produce during that second half of your cycle the less progesterone you have because yeah. our body makes cortisol out of progesterone yeah so, and stress is not just like when you hear the word stress, you think, okay, my boss was yelling at me, there was traffic. But when you mention, Monica, that you had issues with inflammation in your body and leaky gut and various kind of issues with gut health, well, what do you think that causes in the body? Well, it causes inflammation. And mm -hmm. what does your body do when there's inflammation? It makes more cortisol. Yes. <laughs> and I had a um, lot. So when we, <laughs> right? And so when we think of cortisol, uh, when we think of like stress, I often say like, so there's the stressors that we are aware of and we think about acute stressors. Like I had a fight with my partner this morning. Like I didn't, but I'm giving this as an example. But like, so we think of like a, a situational type of a stress. Like the world is crazy right now, that stress. But then also there's chronic stress. And there are things that cause inflammation. There are things that increase our body's need to produce cortisol, like eating sugar all the time. That causes inflammation. That causes more of the stress hormone. Over-exercise, yep. like not getting enough sleep, like not getting enough to eat. And so I think from this perspective then, and the great thing about PMS is that there's a lot of research about it. 
So it's not like a, the great mystery. <laughs> There's a lot of very practical things that we could do. And I think that oftentimes it's super annoying. So when I'm working with clients, because I always take it back to the basics yeah. before we even start talking about supplements, because everyone wants a magical supplement. <laughs> but before we even t- start to talk about supplements, I say things like, so are you sleeping yeah. through the night in the dark? One of the ways to support progesterone production in the luteal phase and that lengthens your luteal phase, you know, reduces some of those PMS symptoms. One of the ways to do that is to get at least seven hours of sleep a night and to sleep in the dark. So if you have a television in your room that's always on, if you have a window open to the main street and there's a light coming in, put something over that and find a way to sleep in the dark. You open your hand in front of your face, you can't see it. Sleeping in the dark is enough to give them an additional day of their luteal phase and to help them. So I did a, a podcast interview years ago and what she said was when light is the issue, then that's the result. So I'm not, this is not me saying everybody, all, everyone in the world just has to do this one thing. <laughs> that's not yeah, what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. But no, I'm no, saying no. like, before we talk about supplements, are you sleeping enough? Are you sleeping in the dark? Do you have a difficult time falling and staying asleep? These are things. So literally like looking at the sleep routine, looking at what you're doing. We could talk about sleep for a whole hour. Right. <laughs> like, so I'll, I'll, I'll like, I'll kind of pull it back. But I'm just saying like, that's one of the things I would want to look at first. Are you eating enough food? Are you getting three meals a day every single day? And in each meal, are you getting sufficient protein, fat, and carbohydrates? We need fat, animal fat. Animal fat contains cholesterol. Oh my gosh, I said it. But every hormone that we produce, estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, cortisol, vitamin D, they're produced from cholesterol. So are you eating three meals a day? And in each meal, do you get sufficient protein, fat, and carbohydrates? You know, are you, are you taking care of yourself? Are you exercising? But how much are you exercising? You know, are you exercising? And if you're exercise, if you do CrossFit six days a week, are you consuming the equivalent to an extra meal every day to make up for that additional energy expenditure? So before I even get into a lot of these conversations around like magical supplements for <laughs> PMS, mm-hmm. I want to look at some of those basics. And one of the big triggers for a lot of women that makes their PMS sy- symptoms way worse is the sugar consumption, like the, the high glycemic carbohydrates. So this isn't about like a specific diet. You'll never hear me talking about like this diet or that diet, but it's literally about what works to support our hormones and to reduce the symptoms. And yeah. sugar doesn't work. It's just really going back to our basic education and the way we've been living for the past, let's say, 100 years, maybe even just 75 years. It's gone so way off of what <laughs> a, a human being needs to function properly. <laughs> and it's really hard when you're dealing with infertility and you're watching all these other women who are doing the exact same thing as you and they're getting pregnant and you're not. And we don't realize that our genetics play into it, our lifestyle, our mental and emotional stress, our trauma from our past, from our parents' past. It all adds up. And for us, infertility is just a way of our body expressing that. And it sucks. Well, and and <laughs> oh, God, so and there's and a big and... elephant in the room, your partner. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, yeah. what I do, <laughs> what I do in my classes, right? Like I'm the fertility awareness girl. So I teach women how to, how to track their cycles, how to identify the fertile window, how to time correctly, and really how to optimize as much as you can possibly optimize around the menstrual cycle. Mm-hmm. And also then how to look at it as a 
of vital signs so that you can see information from that. Like if your mucus patterns are off, if your overall cycle length is off, if, if your luteal phase is too short, we look at all of those things as important markers and work towards correcting that. However, because one of the things you said earlier was really important for women who are really aware of their cycles and tracking and their cycles are basically normal and they're still not getting pregnant. So in order to get pregnant, now this simplifies it, but stick with me. You need healthy eggs, healthy sperm, healthy cervical fluid, and a healthy body. So it does simplify it a bit, but at the end of the day, there's a whole 50% of the genetic material that isn't up to you. And I certainly have seen a lot of women who have very healthy cycles. They have all the mucus, they're having sex at the right time, and it's just not sticking cycle after cycle. And often, pretty much always, they, <laughs> in my experience, they've been told by their doctors that their husband's sperm is totally fine. Fine is a word that I despise. Right. Because when I look at the actual <laughs> data, like when I look at the actual semen analysis, the the sperm might be, you know, within the very, very ridiculously low World Health Organization um, 2010 document standards. But when you look at the actual science that tells us what is optimal, mm -hmm. I have basically never seen a couple who is has been trying unsuccessfully for six months or more, whose partner sperm is perfect in all of those areas. Yeah. Just putting it out there. Elephant no, it's totally true hurt. because, you know, my husband got diagnosed with fine <laughs> and even right? fine. We, we did an IVF round and it was a shambles. I mean, it was a shambles considering you looked at us and we were all normal. And so I decided to go onto the diet. I was like, right, I need to fix my diet. And not that I had an unhealthy diet. That was the kicker. I wasn't eating McDonald's. I wasn't eating candy bars. I was just eating the normal, typical American diet, which was very unhealthy now that I look at it. But I was doing it alone. My husband was like, I'm fine. They've told me I'm right? fine. And about a few weeks into it, I was like, I can't do this by myself. I can't sit and watch you do this. I need your support. And we had a really heated conversation. And I was like, well, basically, if you don't do it with me, I'm not having kids. I'm not going through IVF again if you don't improve. And so he's like, okay. I, you know, it was like I, like, I just, I guess I had that confidence in me. I know that there's a lot of women that could never say that to their husband, but um, he changed his diet. His sperm improved by the millions not just a little, by millions. And then we saw he was kind of like borderline narcoleptic. <laughs> and he's a very high achiever when he was on this normal diet. He was um, a fascia pilot in the Royal Air Force. So no one could look at him and say, oh, you're, you're slow, right? Like it wasn't <laughs> like that. But he was just a little bit, he would fall asleep in like, you know, the middle of the day. And so once he improved his diet, he just improved in all areas of life. And I always tease him that our infertility got him to the pinnacle of his career. He ended up being in the Red Arrows, which is the equivalent of the Thunderbirds or the Blue Angels in America. And I said to him, I don't think you would have made it because you wouldn't have had that extra ability to be awake. <laughs> to like do these things. So I am a hundred percent on board with you. Like no matter if you are, if you are told fine, it's not fine is a crappy word. Who wants to be fine? You know, that's what Ugh. we say to someone when someone asks us, you know, like, how are you doing today? And if we feel like shit, we're like, fine. <laughs> right. Like we use yeah. that word to well, I like, have a thing to say. Hide. 
Well, because, I mean, I feel like this is another thing that, like, that everyone needs to hear. So, ready? Lay it on us. There is no man alive that is so healthy that he doesn't even need a multivitamin when you're preparing for pregnancy. I have had enough of this foolishness. Yeah. So I could go on on a tangent. I'm going to make it short. (laughs) So again, when you look at the research, the average man in the 1940s had a sperm concentration of about 113 million sperm per milliliter. So you can just literally look at pull old studies when they would just study the population. And this is about what you would see as just the average. Mm -hmm. Today's man has an average of about 50 million sperm per milliliter. This isn't even about your partner because this is a global phenomenon. And sperm are basically like, it's tongue in cheek, but you can find articles with people saying like, well, geez, if sperm was a species, we would call it endangered. Because legitimately, mm-hmm. within the next 50 to 100 years, if nothing changes, we are going to get to the point where the average man can't impregnate his spouse. Yeah. And this is a huge problem. So this is why I say that as women, we take it all on because we have the menstrual cycle, we have the uterus, we have the ovaries, we have the pregnancy, we have the childbirth, we have the breastfeeding. So we have all these visual cues of the fertility aspect of it. And so it's very easy to just not really think about the man's contribution. But again, if you look at, even if you look at ancestral cultures and traditions, so this isn't to put the, all the ancestral cultures and traditions on a pedestal because some of those traditions are really weird and not okay. But if you look at the, the ancestral traditions, a lot of these cultures that were untouched by society had very specific kind of rituals and food things that they did around the time of marriages. Like there were cultures that had specific diets that people would consume for six months before they got married and and had children and things like that. And so I guess my point is that we don't let the men off the hook. They like, I have two sons and I've got strong genes and they both came out looking exactly like dad. Never forget. And that's, it's a good thing. He's, he's handsome. But what I'm saying (laughs) is that never forget that he contributes to half of the genetic material. Mm -hmm. Never forget that if his sperm is really poor quality, then it can prevent you from conceiving. And it can also lead you to miscarry. So when you miscarry as a woman, you assume that it's because you're, you know, this is just how it is. Like, I've had a miscarriage before as well. And it's like, you think if your body's broken, there's something wrong. Like, this is just how we are. We're kind of made this way. It seems like we just take it all on, but we don't necessarily consider like, wait a minute, there's two of us. Yeah. And if his sperm quality isn't great, then I could actually, like his sperm could have DNA damage that could then go on to cause me to miscarry. Like we don't, we don't live in a world that talks like that. It's just like, you take all the supplements, you track your cycles, you do all the work. I'm going to eat Cheetos and we're going to get pregnant. Right. Yeah. And the thing, um, all my listeners know that why I got into this, I stumbled on the research of epigenetics. And that's what really pushed me on into wanting to talk about diet and your lifestyle. You know, unhealthy people get pregnant all the time. You do not have to be a perfect specimen of health to get pregnant. The crackhead on the street has proven that to us. But what's happening is the latest generation, aren't they? um, I'm pretty sure that they've been said that they are not going to outlive the previous generations before. We are becoming sicker and sicker and sicker. And it's not only us living right now and doing these things, it's if we're not, and it's not set in stone that fertility is so fickle and we do not know, but there's enough research to 
show us that what we're doing now does have an impact on our future children. And it starts before egg and sperm meets and it continues on and on. And we are passing down or we potentially pass down, you know, our infertility. And like you say, like the research is out there and that's why I'm passionate. I mean, my first son is IVF. My second son is natural. And so I I know both sides of getting pregnant, but I still feel if you're going to use IVF, that it's still your duty to make sure that you are trying to give, doing as much as possible to give your future children the best outcome in life. My husband's side has prostate cancer. His grandfather had it. His father had it. His brother had it. I'm positive he has it. It's lying there, you know, dormant or maybe will present himself later in life. Our sons are predisposed to that. So it's my mission as much as I possibly can to set them up in the future. So if they do have to deal with it, that they're prepared, their body was as healthy as it possibly could. And I know once they hit 10, 15, that's out of my hands completely. (laughs) The Doritos and all that will come in. But having that awareness, it just gives you those extra decisions, right? And it's sometimes really overwhelming, but I feel like it's powerful too. Like you have control, like your genetics aren't set in stone. You can, you know, they go this way, they go that way, but it is really dependent on how you decide to eat, to live, to, you know, worship, to have faith, to meditate, to all those things really impact your cells every second and every moment of your life. And even if you're just doing some stuff to make it better, it's better than, you know, it's like, I always feel it's like the matrix. It's like that blue pill, red pill. Like once you know, it's so like, it's so hard to go back and you just live a kind of almost kind of like you don't care kind of lifestyle. Like this doesn't impact me. Food doesn't impact me. Stress doesn't impact me, you know, and until you hit the wall. And I think infertility is a, is something that can really just like shake you up and go, Hey, wake up, you know, especially unexplained. I ha- I always hated it when people are like, well, it's just one of those things. It's like, nah, it's not, it can't be one of those things. There's got to be a reason why, like women have been doing this for millions of years. It's not just one of those things. Well, I remember oh. I did an interview a long time ago uh, with Dr. Thomas Cowan and the way he talked about it, I don't remember his exact wording, but you know, We've gotten to the point where we don't necessarily think about our natural body functions as natural. So uh, the birth control pill, for example, shuts down ovulation and prevents us from having a natural cycle. But many of us are pretty much most of us, if not all, are taught that it it just regulates the period. So we kind of think like it's the same. But having a healthy, normal menstrual cycle is a part of your physiology as a female. If you just stopped having bowel movements like you'd be alarmed. Like if, if you just like stopped having a bowel movement like for days and weeks, you would be alarmed. You would think this is a problem. But for some reason, we've gotten to the point where we're so disconnected from, I would say, reality that we kind of think of our menstrual cycle as something separate from ourselves. And if it's not working properly, it's like you, we just haven't been taught that. So a healthy female body of reproductive age, like a, as a woman of reproductive age, a healthy menstrual cycle is as normal or at least we should consider it as normal as having like a daily bowel movement because it's literally just part of how our body functions so when we are not able to reproduce we should be looking at that on both sides both men and and women 
uh, as a sign. So if we stick with the vital sign analogy, and I think the good news here with, you know, conversations like ours and growing awareness of the link between overall health and fertility and, you know, conception and all of these things is that there's a lot that we can do. There's a lot that I, I suppose with these types of challenges, it, it presents an opportunity to look deeper and, and find out what's happening. And I would say that obviously what you said is really important because, you know, however your baby comes into the world, I think is how your baby was supposed to come into the world. But you'll never regret looking into your health and overall, like for both you and your partner. So, you know, if, if down the road, IVF is what brings your baby to you, if you go through this road of improving health, improving your menstrual cycles, improving your PMS symptoms, improving his diet and all those types of things so that he has better quality sperm, if IVF is the route that brings you your baby, then you're making it easier for it to work by finding yourself at the healthiest possible. So I think that there's a lot of hope and a lot of positives to, to stick to in this discussion because when it comes to unexplained fertility, the medical field may look at it as unexplained, but you could, I'm sure, go to several alternative practitioners. I mean, as, as a naturopath, an alternative practitioner, I suppose so, but you can go to different modalities, different healing modalities, and they probably wouldn't be saying that it's unexplained. Like you mm -hmm. go to someone who specializes in gut health and they're not telling you it's unexplained. They're telling you that you need to fix your gut. Yeah. for example. <laughs> yeah, like I do. <laughs> That's where we right? start. Like how many cases of unexplained infertility have issues with gut health or issues with sperm quality or what, yeah. what, what have you like underlying infections? Like, so it's unexplained maybe based on the modality of Western medicine, but that doesn't mean that it's actually unexplained. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and there are cases, I, I do want to put out there, that are unknown to everyone. You know, there are going to be cases that you can do every single thing right on the holistic side, on the medical side, and for some reason it doesn't work. But I wish I had a crystal ball. <laughs> that would be amazing. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. I know we went off on a few little tangents, but we I, I loved our conversation. I hope you, our listeners, got some nuggets of knowledge out of it. Please let our listeners know where they can find you. Well, thank you again. Yes, we certainly did. We, I think we kind of just followed where, yeah. <laughs> where, we were, where the wind took us today. I always trust that what's supposed to come out comes out, but thank you for that. Um, so for those of you who are really interested in fertility awareness and cycle tracking and the concept of the menstrual cycle as a vital sign, you can find me at Fertility Friday. So my podcast, the Fertility Friday podcast is in its sixth year, over 300 episodes. So there's a lot of really interesting conversations over there. So in your favorite podcast player, you can just search Fertility Friday. My book is The Fifth Vital Sign and everything that we talked about today, including all the scientific information is in the book. I put in over a thousand research citations because I wanted to not just be hot air saying like, believe me, because I said so. I wanted you to be able to actually research it yourself so that you can you know, see for yourself if what I'm saying makes any sense. So if you go to the fifth vital sign book.com, you can get the first chapter for free. Otherwise it's available on Amazon. And yeah, thank you so much for, for having me. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you. You guys have a beautiful Friday and we will see you next week for another episode of Finding Fertility. Thank you once again for tuning in to the Finding Fertility podcast. If you're loving this podcast, please leave us a rating and review and let us know how this podcast is supporting you to get steps closer to creating your dream family. I hope you have a beautiful weekend and we will see you next Friday for another episode of the Finding Fertility podcast.